Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, the book of Jonah, the introduction. Within its mere four chapters, the book of Jonah presents one of the more complex, controversial, and difficult books among all the prophets to interpret. Now this might seem counterintuitive, since the story is one of the first that Jewish and Christian children are taught. And the story of Jonah is portrayed as a simple, if not fun, sea adventure of a man falling overboard from a ship and getting swallowed by a whale but miraculously surviving in the innards of that giant creature for three days and three nights. So while the title of the Bible book that we're about to study is Jonah, and while on the surface the primary subject of this little but powerful book might seem to most naturally center on the question of what exactly happened to the prophet Jonah and what was he really like by means of seeing how he reacted to God's command to go and preach to the Gentiles of Nineveh and all the misadventures that followed him. The much more important and serious question that is actually being asked in this little book and it's real revealed to us is, what is God really like? What makes God tick? Why does He do as He does? What, when we boil it all down, best epitomizes God in a way we can comprehend Him, in a way we can characterize Him, and then we can explain Him to others. I'm speaking neither of His substance nor His shape but rather of His truest nature that is best exposed in how He operates, not theoretically, but in reality, throughout time, throughout history, and therefore presumably throughout the future and on into eternity. Now I opened with this thought because quite often in commentaries and academic monologues about the book of Jonah, of which there are hundreds and hundreds of them, the premise is regularly made that the central theme of Jonah is a little bit hazy and difficult to identify. The confusion, I believe, comes by focusing attention too much on trying to dissect the person and the actions of Jonah instead of noticing the character and purpose of the God he's reacting to. Now, like any good story, there are multiple literary elements involved in the telling that revolve around the main characters. However, the elements themselves surrounding Jonah are not the point. Rather, they are but vehicles to transport us to the author's point. 
The reality is that most narrative in the Bible is given to us in the form of expression that is usually less direct as to its precise meaning and application than we wish it might be. We would, of course, prefer to encounter a series of, of bold and unmistakably explicit statements about morals and ethics or ideology or even human psychology that would make discerning a passage's meaning far easier for us. Many Bible scholars say that Jonah is the most extreme example of this problem among all the Bible books of the Old Testament. And as one might suspect then, the ancient as well as the modern Hebrew scholars have different views of what this book is teaching us, with each viewpoint based upon which element of the story they see as the most important one that conveys to us the ultimate point of this story of Jonah. My job then will be to help untangle all this and to distill all these viewpoints down into the single most likely one. And then staying within the context of the time and the culture it was created and who the intended audience was to be, see if we can learn from it the lesson that Jehovah wants us as worshipers to know and then to practice in our own lives. So, who was Jonah? Well, the first verse of the book clearly identifies the person of Jonah as being the son of Amittai. Now, one of the things to understand about biblical Hebrew names is that when a name like Jonah son of Amittai, in Hebrew, Yonah ben Amittai, or later even like Paul of Tarsus comes along, these are not like complete names that form a first name and a surname or family name or what we in the West tend to call last names. So Jonah isn't his first name and son of Amittai is not his last name. Okay. The use of last names didn't come into use among Hebrews until centuries later and was really more about their eventual assimilation into Roman culture. Rather, at the time when the Bible was written, when the number of Israelites had grown exponentially and there were so many men and women with the same given names, adding son or daughter of so-and-so was a way of narrowing down which local family someone belonged to. But even then, as one can imagine, there were duplicates and so it wasn't at all precise. Even so, there is no real doubt that the Jonah son of Amittai in the book of Jonah is the same person that is mentioned in the book of Kings. In 2 Kings, 
uh, chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, we read this. It was in the 15th year of Amatzia, the son of Yosh, king of Judah, that Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam, the son of Yoash, king of Israel, began to reign in Shomron, Samaria, and he ruled for 41 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He recovered the territory of Israel between the entrance of Hamath and the Sea of the Arabah. In keeping with the word of Adonai, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gat Hefer. For Adonai saw how bitterly Israel had suffered with no one left, either slave or free, and no one coming to Israel's aid. Adonai did not threaten to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but saved them through Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Okay. The king, this, this, this king Jeroboam of 2 Kings 14 is actually Jeroboam II. And he reigned over the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel from 793 to 753 BC. All right. So clearly Jonah lived and prophesied somewhere during that time period. The city he is said to be from, Gath-Hefer, was part of the territory belonging to the Israelite tribe of Zebulun. And is very likely the same place known today as Kirbet el Zerah, that's located no more than about an hour's walk from Nazareth. Now, at this time in history, Israel was a divided nation, consisting of the kingdom of Judah and then separately the kingdom of Israel. Zebulun fell within the kingdom of Israel. And just so there's no misunderstanding, I'm going to switch back and forth with identifying the name of this northern kingdom as simply that, just the northern kingdom, or as Israel, or as Ephraim, or as actually most often as Ephraim Israel, because that's what the scriptures do. So in the era of about 950 to 720 BC, the tribe of Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the northern part of Hebrew-held territory. Judah was the dominant tribe to the south. And so in reality, that northern kingdom went primarily by the name Ephraim, not Israel. However, the Bible does at times refer to it as Israel. So it can get confusing. I want to say it another way. While the name Israel technically meant all 12 tribes combined as a single nation, we'll also at times see the term Israel used to refer only to that northern kingdom. Now the only way we can know which is which is by the context of the statement. Without any other evidence to the contrary then, Jonah must himself have been part of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, and part of the tribe of Zebulun. And he was a trained, experienced, recognized prophet of God called to minister to King Jeroboam II, starting sometime early 
in the 8th century BC. However, that does not mean that the book of Jonah itself was composed at that same time. In fact, Jonah almost certainly had no hand in writing this book that's named for him. Rather, it was an anonymous person that Bible academia just typically calls the narrator who wrote it. Jonah is not, is not what is typically dubbed a writing prophet, a writing prophet. That is, he did not write down, he didn't or have a scribe write down his own prophecies and circumstances like many other prophets uh, did write down, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and several others did. Now, there is no consensus among scholars that Jonah was written by even a single hand. Some believe it is a composite work of several authors and editors over time due to what they believe are different styles reflected in different parts of the work. However, the preponderance of both Jewish and Christian scholars see no reason to doubt that Jonah was composed by just one person. The arguments against this being the work of a single author are extremely technical and often far-fetched, okay, that take very large leaps and unlikely assumptions about how people wrote back then. There are even a handful of scholars who believe Jonah wrote his own book. Now, very, this is very unlikely for a couple of reasons. First, it's because the story is not even told in the style of a person describing his own experiences. And second, it is this rather critical tone, if not a downright negative portrayal of Jonah from beginning to end. I mean, it would be so unusual as to be without precedent that a person would write about themselves and the way, way Jonah would read, read about Jonah in, in, in his book. All right. At least without speaking of the repentance of behaving in such a manner or offering some good reason or rationalization for that bad behavior. So, without any solid evidence to think otherwise, I'm going forward with the understanding that a single person that we'll call the narrator wrote the book of Jonah some years after Jonah lived and that the events recorded in Jonah actually occurred. To summarize, the book of Jonah is about Jonah, but it was not written by Jonah. So, when was it written? Again, there's little evidence within its passages to date it with any accuracy. It could have been written any time from 750 BC to 250 BC, pretty wide range. However, the latest due date is probably too late to consider because the book of Tobit mentions Jonah and the composition of the book of Tobit is thought to be pretty certainly in the 3rd century BC. Further, the book of Ben Sirah, which was written very early 
in the second century BC speaks of 12 minor prophets. This tells us that the order of the 12 minor prophets in our Bibles and the inclusion of the book of Jonah as one of those 12 minor prophets had already been well established. So the likelihood that Tobit and Ben Sirah would mention a book it deemed as Holy Scripture as, as having been only very recently written and placed into the Hebrew Bible is quite small. Therefore, we can probably narrow down the date Jonah was, Jonah was written to being from the late 8th century to the 4th century BC, which of course is still a sizable window of time, but in intellectual honesty, we really can't do any better than that. Now both Christian and Jewish, but especially Jewish scholarship on Jonah, tend to see Jonah as either having influence upon or being influenced by the writer of Jeremiah. Others see Jonah as a midrash, in other words, a commentary on the book of Amos or even on the book of Hosea. A few think it was a Jewish midrash on the book of Obadiah, maybe even Joel. They base these possibilities mostly on where it is placed in the order of the twelve minor prophets as we find it in the Bible. If Jonah has any direct relationship to another prophetic book, I think it's closest in nature and subject to the book of Amos, but not as a midrash, not as a commentary on the book of Amos. Now this possible relation, this, this relation, uh, possible relationship is simply because Jonah lived and was active about the same time as was Amos. And they both were dealing with circumstances of the northern kingdom and of Assyria as they existed in the early to the mid 8th century BC. I mean, to me, it's unthinkable that they wouldn't have at least known of one another and could well have been personally acquainted, for all we know. What's interesting, at least it's interesting to me, is that this book is placed among the minor prophets instead of somewhere in the section of the Old Testament called the writings. Same section of the Old Testament where we find Daniel and Esther and Ruth and other books that essentially tell stories. Jonah is so extremely different than other prophetic books such that the great Bible scholar Carl Budd even suggested that it was added to the minor prophets section so the total number of them would add up to 12. In other words, 12 being a highly symbolic number in the Bible. Now, though, although I find that possibility remote at best, it can't be entirely dismissed. And it does tell us how difficult it can be to classify the nature of the literature to which Jonah belongs. See, this is also why so many Jewish scholars believe that Jonah ought to be taken as more of a long, standalone parable, even a midrash on some other book of the Scripture, than it is to be considered as a book of prophecy. So why was Jonah 
placed where it was placed, where we find it, our Bibles? Eh, probably because it's a short book. That's the nature of the, all the books of the Minor Prophets. And because of the subject, and because of the time period it speaks about. Now, one relationship between Jonah and another book that, to me, is obvious, but never seems to be talked about, is the book of Exodus. The Jewish Publication Society's commentary on Jonah highlights this relationship. I can do no better than to simply quote from it. They say this, there is a fundamental analogy between the overthrow decreed for Nineveh and the sentence of total destruction passed on Israel after the sin of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32.10. Yet readers seem to be unaware of this similarity until they realize that the king's decree to the people of Nineveh, which is, who knows, God may turn and repent and turn back from his wrath so that we do not perish, you find that in Jonah 3.9, also echoes Moses' prayer on behalf of his people, which is, turn back from your wrath and repent of the evil to your people, which we find in Exodus um, 32.12, while the narrators comment in Jonah that God repented the evil, which he had said he would do to them and did not do it, that's in Jonah 3.10, echoes God's acceptance of Moses' entreaty to him when we read that, the Lord repented of the evil which he had said he'd do to his people in Exodus. So you see this relationship, very close relationship. And while we could dissect this relationship on mostly technical grounds for our purpose, I only want to highlight that what we should take from this is that God is always consistent in his actions. I think that's just a wonderful thing. In Exodus, God was dealing with a Gentile king that was an enemy of Israel. And in Jonah, it was the same. In Exodus, the enemy is Egypt. In Jonah, the enemy is Assyria. In both cases, the Lord's goal was not to find reason to destroy a pagan Gentile nation, but rather it was to try to find a reason to show them mercy. Just as God spared the Israelites, He wants to spare the Gentile nations from His wrath. However, for that to happen, after being warned by a prophet, real action by Israel was required, just as real action has to be taken by Gentile nations for God to forego His wrath upon them. See, this message needs to be dug up from the many years it seems to have been buried and separated from Christian tradition and then reborn into our hearts, especially in the West, especially in the last couple of centuries. The church has, for the most part, decided that our, our behavior, our physical actions, have little to no connection with our salvation. Put it another way, whereas the first step to peace with God is 
repentance, that repentance involves only a change of hearts or minds, but no physical, tangible change of how we behave is required. Biblically speaking, this turns the actual meaning of repentance on its head. And that fact is strongly and plainly reflected in the book of Jonah. And I will say without equivocation that repentance has no meaning, it has no effect if it does not also involve a direct and sudden change in our behavior. A true and sincere repentance, a saving kind of repentance, then consists of two elements that even though they can be spoken of separately, they cannot be separated in actuality. And while it isn't our good behavior per se that saves us, it is our wrong behavior that leads us to needing a Savior, isn't it? Therefore a change in our behavior to the better is what God seeks of us. And at the same time, that change of behavior is the proof that repentance of our heart is real. I'll say it this way. Salvation must, must result in a change in our behavior and in our choices, or we are deceiving ourselves, no matter how much we might yell and scream and insist otherwise. See, this is something that Yeshua himself emphasized. And later on, his biological brother James did as well. In Matthew 7, starting at verse 15, we read, Beware of the false prophets. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes? or figs from thistles. Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear good fruit. Uh, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a poor tree bear good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down. It's thrown in the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, in the day of judgment, many will come to me saying, Lord, but Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Meaning, didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? See, I often refer to this passage as the most frightening one in the Bible. Its message is clear. If you claim Yeshua as Savior, 
you will bear good fruit. You will do good works. If you don't bear good fruit, then you're either a liar or you are a seriously self-deceived person. I know that's strong. I'll probably get smacked when I get home for that one. A little unfiltered. Using an agricultural metaphor that any child could have understood, Jesus said that obviously a bad tree is inherently incapable of producing good fruit. Nor can a good tree, by its very nature, produce bad fruit or no fruit at all. But further, a bad tree can pronounce itself good all at once, from sunup to sunset. But if it bears no good fruit, then this is the absolute proof this is not a good tree. Well, after that statement, he immediately goes on to explain what happens to those who make the claim of being a good tree, but they bear no good fruit. They are cut down, destroyed by fire. Why? Because good trees are made good by God. But they are made good for one overriding purpose, to produce fruit. What good is a fruit tree if it doesn't produce fruit? Even more, on Judgment Day, that person who claims to be a Christ follower, saved by grace, whose life reflects no evidence of it, will be denied entrance into the Kingdom of Heaven. Bottom line, good fruit is not merely a changed heart. Let's put it the way it really means it in the Bible, a changed mind. It's also a changed physical and tangible, tangible behavior. One without the other serves no purpose before God, so it's destroyed. James, uh, Jesus' brother James puts it another way in James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and someone says, Shalom, keep warm, eat hearty, without giving him what he needs. What good does it do? Thus faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have actions. Well, show me this faith of yours without the actions and I'll show you my faith by my actions. You believe God's one, ah, good for you. The demons believe it too. And the thought makes them shudder with fear. But foolish fellow, do you really want to be shown that such faith apart from actions is barren? Wasn't Avraham Avenu, Abraham our father, declared righteous because of actions when he offered up his son Isaac, Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith worked with his actions. By the actions, the faith was made complete. And by the way, the book of James has been part of and removed 
then part of, then removed, only to be put back in the Bible for centuries by the church, mainly because of what is seen as a too Jewish mindset based upon James' focus on the need of a believer's life to be one of action and good works. Without this action, our claimed faith in Christ is dead, meaning it's false, no matter how much we have convinced ourselves that it's sincere. That is, it's not a matter, you see, think of it this way. It's not a matter of us being convinced of a proper faith in Christ. It's God being convinced. And that only happens, according to the Bible, with our good works and good deeds. So as we will read in the book of Jonah, once warned, God will give mercy only when He sees that there is a change of behavior. Only. In the case of Jonah, it's the behavior of the people of Nineveh of Assyria he's looking for. Old Testament or new, the message is the same. Now for the difficult part. Is the story of Jonah historically true? Did he really fall overboard into a raging sea and get swallowed up by a whale? Then survive for three days inside that sea beast, only to be taken to a distant shore where the whale vomited him out. The good news is, is that whether the story is real or fictional, the moral truth to it is true and it remains the same. So it's important for us to know whether this is actual history or alternately is it just a well-fashioned fable with a divine truth as its point. No one can know the answer to this question with absolute certainty, yet there are ways we can think about it to arrive at a reasonable conclusion. You see, human nature is generally predictable over the span of history, usually for the worse than the better, unfortunately. Humans will identify and act upon what they believe the story is telling them to do or not to do more if it's real and it actually happened than if it's a pleasant fable with a good moral to it that makes it essentially theoretical or idealistic. A moral ideal that is theoretical has much less effect upon us than one which we know has been demonstrated in practice. The theoretical says, this is how we ought to think and to believe and to behave. The actual historical says this is how we must think and believe and behave, and this outcome shows us why. This is the reason that true evangelism by believers is far more in how we live our lives than what we profess with our mouths. How we behave over time 
is so much more convincing and effective than any tract we can hand out, any speech we can give. Jonah has had a huge effect on the Jewish people especially. The story of Jonah was so well known, it was so accepted and believed to have actually happened, that Yeshua referred to it directly when speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. Matthew 12, starting at verse 36, Moreover, I tell you this, on the day of judgment people will have to give account for every careless word they have spoken, for by your own words you will be acquitted, and by your own words you will be condemned. And at this some of the Torah teachers said, Rabbi, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he replied, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. No, none will be given to you but for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they turned from their sins to God when Jonah preached. But what is here now is greater than Jonah. I mean, it's just not credible that Yeshua would draw on Jonah if Jonah was merely a figment of some writer's fertile imagination. And of all people, he would have known the difference. There is little more important sign of Yeshua's actual fulfillment of prophecy, is there, than the one we find in the book of Jonah. Jesus even continues by drawing a comparison and a contrast between the Jews of his generation and the Gentiles of Nineveh, saying that the people who think themselves as God's chosen are seen by him as worse than the people of Nineveh that Jonah spoke to and pronounced doom upon. And that as great as Jonah the prophet was in the eyes of all the Jewish people, Yeshua was even greater. The bottom line, Christ certainly thought that Jonah and his sea saga was historically true. So I'll take his word for it. And we're going to approach our study of Jonah believing it's true. However, let's not whitewash this either. How could Jonah actually have been swallowed by a whale and survived in its stomach for three days. Now we can say that it seems improbable to impossible on its face. But if we do that, then we are saying that God has a limitation on his ability to issue miracles. The Bible's full of miracles and of prophecies that many more miracles that are yet to come. In this era of scientism and an insistence by even people of faith, whether Jews or Christians, on complete rationality as accepted by human intellect as the lab test for biblical truth, then the answer is that what is purported to have happened to Jonah could not possibly have happened and it's just a primitive fairy tale. 
This mindset is why we have large and growing segments of the church that are denying Yeshua's resurrection and ascension or even His virgin birth. Others of His miracles have been rationalized away by saying that the dead that He brought back to life weren't really dead, or that the fishes and the loaves episode is just a great exaggeration, or was His walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee really true, so on. But if that's so, then what use is the biblical record to us? Paul hits that matter head on in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 13. He says, you know, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the Messiah hasn't been raised. And if the Messiah has not been raised, then what we proclaim is in vain. Also your trust is in vain. Furthermore, we are shown up as false witnesses for God. And having testified that God raised up the Messiah, whom He did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then the Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless. And so you're still in your sins. Also, if this is the case, those who died in union with the Messiah are lost. Let me put this in plain terms. If we remove miracles from our faith, our faith collapses. Absolutely collapses. Therefore, those who cannot believe in miracles, yet claim a Christian faith, in reality harbor a false faith that's just worthless. Merely believing that Jesus Christ lived and died and that He was an exceptionally good man with an exceptionally good philosophy of life that we all ought to live by is not going to save us. Yeshua's resurrection was a miracle just as Jonah's time in the belly of the giant sea creature was a miracle. End of story. Now at the time of the Jonah story, the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel was prosperous, it was admired in the region. On the other hand, Nineveh, a large city in Assyria, was not, and in fact they were struggling. Historical records show that Nineveh was just not doing well. Assyria had suffered a series of military defeats and they were also dealing with famine. Additionally, during the same time, a major earthquake happened, as did a solar eclipse. Now, earthquakes and solar eclipses were seen as bad omens, that they happened so close together only elevated the anxiety of the people. The monarchy that ruled Assyria at this time, which was Ashurdan III, was weak and he was very vulnerable. Therefore, Assyria was at this time no threat at all to Israel and of a very minimal threat to its neighboring nations in the region. They were just simply too busy trying to survive than to be a, a serious bother to other nations. Now, I bring this up because the question of why would God send the Hebrew Jonah 
to Gentile Nineveh needs a good answer. See, during this era, Assyria was nearly universally despised. This was partly due to their religion, partly because they did have some power when that they that they treated conquered people inhumanely. All right, and partly because they became known as ruthless as an immoral society. Yet it is not Assyria that singled out. Rather, it's a large city in Assyria, Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an important city, probably the most important city, with a population of well over a hundred thousand people. Yet it was in no way the official capital of Assyria. Even so, it seems that Nineveh the city was made representative of Assyria the nation. This is not an unusual thing in the Bible. For instance, in several of the minor prophets we find that the capital city of the northern kingdom, which is Samaria, is regularly used to represent the entire nation of Ephraim Israel. We even read about a so-called king of Samaria. In reality, cities didn't have their own kings alongside a national king. So the king of Samaria actually was talking about the king of Israel. It's just that Samaria was his capital, but Nineveh was not the capital city of Assyria. Rather, Nineveh was an important city because it was highly populated, large in geographical size, especially for that era, and it was highly influential on Assyrian society. Various kings of Assyria were known to have residences there as opposed to, or maybe it's in addition to, the residence of the nation's official capital city. So in Jonah, the mention of the king of Nineveh, what it's really referring to is the king of all Assyria. Now another question that needs to be answered. Since Jonah didn't write this book, where did the narrator get his information? Where did he get his information? about all that happened with Jonah, especially about what happened with those sailors on that ship that nearly sank. Some of it could have come directly from Jonah. Other parts of the information could have come from the sailors on that faithful cruise who nearly lost their lives to that storm. It could also have been by word of mouth not too long after it all happened, or it could have been an oral tradition that had been developed, which had been handed down for decades or maybe even centuries. Jonah was a very well-known figure, and so one can imagine that when those sailors returned home safely, they began spinning their yarn about everything that happened. I mean, it's not terribly unlike how the Gospel accounts came to be. They were written by writers who didn't witness all that they wrote about. Some didn't witness any of it, but rather they investigated. They interviewed eyewitnesses. They researched other documents. They pieced together an account. Now, we just don't know how the information about Jonah got put together into a book form, yet clearly every generation of Israelites who knew of it accepted it as real and true 
just as did Messiah Yeshua. Now, while information transmitted by word of mouth might be impossible to accept if it had occurred in our time, when photographic or recorded audio or video or written evidence is considered the best and most reliable source of information, oral transmission was actually the normal process in biblical times. Even more so as we go back to the era of Jonah. Oral tradition was always in the hands of the tribal elders, whose job it was to protect it, to ensure its accuracy, and then to hand it down faithfully to the future generations so that it wouldn't be forgotten. It might surprise you to know that the Torah was handed down through oral traditions for centuries, long before it was ever formally, ever formally written down. Now, while the internal evidence is that much or all of the Law of Moses portion of the Torah was recorded soon after God gave it to Moses, there is no doubt that the remainder of the Torah was not. Yet its truthfulness and historical accuracy was never doubted, and so it ought not be doubted by us. And further, because we have a copy of Jonah found at Wadi Murabat at the Dead Sea region dated to no later than 150 BC, and when we compare that copy to what's found in the Masoretic Hebrew text from 1000 AD, the only differences are so minor they're not even worth mentioning. See, this is the hard evidence that demonstrates just how carefully and faithfully the Hebrew Scriptures have been handed down to us over the centuries, even through the millennia. Even more, we have ancient translations of Jonah made in several other languages, and they all match quite well. So we can have confidence, you can have confidence, I can have confidence, that what we have in our modern Bibles that is translated into English is from reliable, well-preserved source documents. That said, English interpretations of these documents do vary a bit, and we're going to encounter an important variation nearly immediately as we begin our verse-by-verse -verse study of Jonah. Well, let's conclude with what the motive could have been for Jonah's strange reaction to God telling him to go and take God's oracle of doom to the people of Nineveh. Right at the beginning of Jonah chapter 4, we're going to read this. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to Adonai, Now Adonai, didn't I say this would happen when I was still in my own country? That's why I tried to get away to Tarshish ahead of time. I knew you were a God who is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in grace, and that you would relent from inflicting punishment. Jonah admits why he be behaved as he did. He despised the reality that Jehovah was indeed consistent when it came to meeting out mercy. 
and more that God was patient. And He is long-suffering, even as it concerns Gentile nations, not just Israel. Now remember, from the time of Abraham onward, the Father divided the world into two foundational people groups, the Hebrews and everybody else. So when God gave Israel the Promised Land, even the territory that each nation of the world held was divided into two foundational groups, the nation of Israel and everybody else. This is why in the Hebrew Scriptures that when the term goyim is used, it carries the dual meaning of nations and of Gentiles. That is, by definition, the nations of the world are Gentile nations. There is only one Hebrew nation, Israel. Well, Jonah was certain, as were Israelites nearly unanimously certain, that God only cared about them, or at least He should only care about them, and ought not be at all concerned about the Gentile nations. He was, after all, Israel's God. So when Jonah finds God dispensing His grace and mercy to a Gentile nation, Syria, it angered him to his core. I want to say that again. Jonah confessed that he hated it, that God showed mercy and compassion to Gentiles. So we need not doubt if that was actually the case. Jonah wanted the Lord to limit the boundaries of His mercy and compassion only to Israel such that he could actually say to God, think about this, he actually said this to God, now I'll paraphrase it, see, I just knew it. I knew it. When you first gave me this assignment to go and tell the people of Nineveh that you were going to destroy them, which I would have been perfectly happy to see happen, because these lousy, foul Gentiles deserve it. I suspected, deep in my heart, you were going to instead give them a chance to change their behavior. Then you'd relent, and then you'd show mercy. Then you'd forego destroying them. That's why I tried to run away from you. And you know what? I was right. You did exactly that, and I don't like it. Okay, we'll be Jonah, begin Jonah chapter 1 next time.